Hello everyone and welcome to the second season of the History of Modern Greece, where we cover the subject of the fall of Constantinople to the modern day. I'm your host, Daniel Roberts, and I'm here with my father, George. Hi, my name's George. And our music is brought to you by Mark Youngerman. This is episode 54, the Viking origin story, the Great Heathen Army. Welcome back to the third episode of the Viking origin story. We know we have detoured from modern Greece, but we promise you it will all make sense in the next couple of episodes. In the last episode, we explained there were three main types of Vikings, the Swedes, the Norse, and the Danes. And we've also established the Swedes were the ones who traveled east and made their way through the Dnieper River to Constantinople and became the Varangian Guard. So you might think that, hey, why aren't you talking about the Swedes? Well, we want to use this episode to wrap up the events that happened in the West because it is the Vikings in the West that really mess up everything for the Greek Byzantine Empire. So to pick things up right where we left off last time with the death of Ragnar Lothbrok, a fictional character based on a real man or men. It is the Vikings who call themselves the Sons of Ragnar that form the great heathen army, and it is with the Sons of Ragnar that we begin this episode. Bjorn Ironside is the first son of Ragnar we'll discuss in this episode, as his epic journey really takes the cake. His story takes us further south than any other Viking, entering the Umayyad Caliphate and raiding into what we would call modern-day Spain. We mentioned this region a little bit in Season 1 when we talked about the Roman Empire, the Great Migration Period, and of course, the Arab Conquests. But just in case you can't remember, we'll catch you up. The Iberian Peninsula was very different in the medieval period than it is today. There was no such place as Spain or Portugal. The peninsula once belonged to the mighty Roman Empire, but during the end of the Western Empire, the Visigoths migrated with force and conquered the entire peninsula from the Latins. These Gothic men held on to the Iberian Peninsula for a couple of centuries, even intermarrying with the Franks in the Merovingian Empire. But in the early 700 CE, 711 to be precise, the Umayyad Caliphate, consisting of Arab and Berber soldiers, crossed the waters from Africa to Europe and conquered the entire peninsula, wiping out the Visigothic kingdoms. The Arab Empire came face to face with the powers of Western Europe in the Battle of Tours in 732 CE, where the mighty Charles Martel defeated the African and Arab armies on the cold European plains. Well, these Visigoths were not wiped out completely. In fact, we used to think they were wiped out because you never really hear about them again. But the thing with Iberia, modern-day Spain, is the terrain is very mountainous and is hard to conquer. While the Umayyads did take the peninsula and conquer the Visigoths, there were a few kingdoms that survived in the very far north. These tiny Christian kingdoms along the Pyrenees Mountains bordered Spain and France, 
And they were not only the front line against the ever-growing and threatening Islamic Empire and the Christian realm of Western Europe, but they were also the direct descendants of the Visigoths. These kingdoms were always on high alert and ready for invasion from the Caliphate at any moment. So they weren't as worried about Viking invaders as the rest of Europe was at the time. If you want to know more about this subject, then I highly recommend listening to the podcast Reconquista by Sharon Ista. She is the same person who made the amazing podcast History of the Crusades and is one of my favorite podcasters. In 844 CE, a Viking raiding party headed south beyond the Frankish lands and into the northern Christian kingdoms of Iberia. So far, they had many successes against the weak Christian settlements of Francia, so why wouldn't they have the same luck here? This was not a small raiding party either. This was a fleet of over a hundred longboats, all filled with Viking warriors. They raided into Galicia, stealing from the Christian kingdom in the north, before heading down to Al-Andalus, where they plundered the rich cities of the Caliphate. Only a third of the ships returned, and they brought with them so much treasure and loot and tales of the rich empire to the south that it inspired other Vikings to eventually return and try to take more. But the stories of these surviving Vikings did not speak of weak Christian monasteries that were undefended. They knew this was an enemy more powerful than anything they ever faced in Europe. In 859 CE, two of the most famous Vikings led an expedition south to the Emirate of Cordoba and into the Mediterranean Sea. The leader of this group was a warlord named Hastein, and the younger was a captain in this fleet called Bjorn Ironside, who claimed to be the son of the famous Ragnar Lothbrok. Unlike the raids of 844, which took the Christian kingdoms and the Islamic emirate completely by surprise, this new raid was going to face a well-defended and prepared military power. The time between the two raids gave the emir enough time to build a new fleet of warships, which were armed with Greek fire. Now the recipe for Greek fire was no doubt won through the Arab conquests in the east. And now these warships, called Dromons, were equipped with Greek fire and were waiting for the next Viking raiders. Hastein and Bjorn and their fleet of a hundred Viking ships launched their first raid against the Christian kingdom of Galicia. Unfortunately for the Vikings, this city was heavily defended and ready for war. They fought off the invaders, killing many of Hastein's soldiers. Realizing they weren't going to get anything from this northern Christian kingdom, they continued their voyage south into the Islamic Emirate of Cordoba. This raid followed a very similar path to the previous raid in 844, so it's most likely they had veterans with them from the original expedition. The Vikings entered the Guadalquivir River, just as they did before. Now, unlike the first voyage, 
This time the Vikings found the river completely fortified by an Arab army and Berber forces prepared for war. The fleet of Dromon warships led by Mohammed I, the Emir of Cordoba, met the Vikings with flames of Greek fire spewed from the nozzles of the Dromons, burning several Viking longboats and everyone inside. The screams of the burning Vikings must have deterred the rest of the fleet, for the battle was called off. Hastein and Bjorn fled Spain entirely. They knew there was no hope in taking on the emirate. Now instead of giving up and turning back home, they pushed forward, looking for another target that could be caught off guard. And so the expedition continued through the Pillar of Hercules and entered the Mediterranean Sea. As the first known Vikings to enter the Mediterranean, they found much more success, sacking and plundering many cities as they sailed along the southern coast of Spain. They even landed on the northern coast of Africa, raiding a city in the Emirate of Nicor, before sailing away with boatloads of treasure. They also found slaves that the Arabs had captured from south of the Sahara and brought them on their Viking longships. This really sucks for those poor slaves as they had already been captured by Arabs, dragged hundreds of miles away from their home where they were forced to work for the Arabs, only to be liberated by Scandinavians who just took them. The Vikings found these men so interesting that they didn't sell them all, and in fact kept several slaves with them for the entire Viking expedition. As Hastein and Bjorn sailed north, they found the soft underbelly of Francia, where the Franks never suspected Vikings to attack. As the Vikings raided small islands and cities along the coast, they eventually found the Rhone River and sailed into Francia from the south. They blitzkrieg attacked the city of Norbon, then found an island at the mouth of the Rhone River, surrounded by marsh. This island was perfect for defending against a Frankish army, and so they set up camp and waited out the winter. By this time, word had made it back to the Frankish king that the southern border was not as protected as they might have imagined. When winter ended, the Vikings climbed into the longboats and rowed up the river, sacking several French cities along the way. It wasn't until they made it to the city of Valence that they met a strong enough army to repel them and force the Vikings back down the river. Hastein and Bjorn were not defeated, but there was no way to push forward without taking heavy losses, so they returned to the Mediterranean Sea to find another target. Their ships were weighed down with gold and plunder, but they kept on sailing further into the unknown, and it was along these travels that they heard of the legendary city of Rome. The stories talked about the eternal city and the immense wealth and treasure that lay there. Little did they know, Rome had fallen centuries before and was sacked so many times that it might as well be a pile of rubble at this point. Hastein and Bjorn were not after treasure alone. They sought something much more valuable. They wanted to be remembered as the legendary Vikings who would live forever in the songs and tales of their descendants. They wanted fame and glory, and so they sought out this legendary city of Rome. Finally, Hastein and Bjorn made it to the shores of Italy. Only there were no chroniclers here writing about the terrible raids. 
And because the Vikings weren't recording the details either, the only source we have of this account comes to us from a writer who lived a hundred years later when he told the story of Bjorn Ironside and Hastein. According to legend, Hastein called upon the priests of the city and asked to be baptized in the Christian faith. He then faked his own death and was placed in a coffin and brought into the city to be buried in consecrated land. Only this was all a trick, and Hastein leapt from his coffin, not only alive, but in perfect health, and plunged his sword into the heart of his enemies. After killing those near him, he raised the gates and let the entire Viking army into the city before violently sacking it. Side note. If you think this reminds you of the TV show Vikings, then you're right. This story has been retold in several Viking stories and might just be a literary trope. For it happens in Norman history with Robert Giscard, and it also happens with Harold Hardraga. It's possible this was the first time it happened, but it's also possible this is just one of those stories that Vikings always tell to glorify their actions. What we do know for sure is that these Italian cities raided by the Vikings were not Rome, but instead Luna and Pisa. After raiding and plundering all that they could, they took their heavy vessels, weighed down by gold and treasure and slaves, and headed back out into the open ocean. We don't know what they did with all these slaves. Did they sell them to the Arabs along the way home? It's very possible, but we do know for sure that they still carried several dark-skinned Africans with them. In 861 CE, Bjorn and Hastein sailed back to the Straits of Gibraltar, or the Pillar of Hercules, and attempted to make their way home. Unfortunately for them, the Emir of Cordoba was waiting for them with his fleet of Dromons, warships that were equipped with Greek fire. Picture this, heavy Viking ships, loaded to the top with gold and plunder, water almost crashing over the edges with every wave, and hundreds of tired Vikings manning the oars as they approached the narrow strait, with Africa on their left and Europe on their right. And then the current picks up, the heavy flow of Atlantic water pouring into the Mediterranean Sea made it as hard to paddle through the strait as it was up a fast-flowing river. The men were tired and rowing with all of their strength. Then out of nowhere, a fleet of warships descended upon them. As the Dromons closed in, they released the Greek fire, spewing liquid flames through the air, catching the ocean itself on fire, and burning thousands of Vikings alive as the survivors struggled to paddle through the narrow strait. Most of the Viking vessels were burned that day, and with them went their occupants and their treasure. But a third of the ships did make it past Mohammed I and his fleet of Dromons, and they sailed out into the open waters of the Atlantic Ocean. Bjorn Ironside and Hastein sailed north up the Atlantic with their last twenty or so ships, passing the last remnants of the caliphate. No doubt they were gloating and boasting about their triumphs as they approached their homeland. 
Now, it's unclear who came up with this crazy idea, whether it was Bjorn or Hastein, but they looked at the rivers that flowed into the Christian kingdoms in northern Iberia and suggested maybe one last raid before we go home. Now, this is a crazy idea, considering they lost most of their men only a few weeks before. But as they sailed up the river, they made it to the Christian kingdom of Pamplona, where they laid siege to the city, attacking with speed and violence. The Vikings hit the city so strong and so fast that they actually captured the palace, taking the king himself as a prisoner. With the king in their possession, they ransomed him back for 70,000 gold pieces. And just like that, the very last raid made them more money than everything they had done up to this point. In 862 CE, the fleet returned home. What started out as a party of 100 ships, only a quarter returned. The vast majority of men had perished in fire and steel. But the ones who did come home were richer than everyone else and brought with them tales of the journey south, which live on to this very day. After this incredible journey, the two men, Hastein and Bjorn, parted ways. Hastein would remain in Francia, a rich man, while Bjorn made his way back to Scandinavia. According to legend, the saga of Ragnar Lothbrok, when Yus made it to his sons that he was tortured and murdered by King Aelia of Northumbria, they all swore to get the revenge and travel to Britain. In 865 CE, they brought their armies and sailed across the sea to, to the coast of East Anglia, the southeastern point of Britain, and possibly the oldest kingdom of Anglo-Saxon Britain. When the armies landed, they marched upon the king's castle, where they met with King Edmund and arranged for horses. This Viking force would be known to history as the Great Heathen Army. They camped there for the winter and prepared for the long fight ahead. The next spring in 866, the army mounted their horses and rode north. Ivar the Boneless, son of Ragnar, led the army and took the city of York later that same year. With York in Viking hands, they had a base of operations that could hold out all year long and raid into Northumbria whenever they felt like it. The king of Northumbria, King Aelia, the same king who executed Ragnar Lothbrok, mounted an army and tried to retake the city of York. When they marched upon the city gates, they saw several Norsemen outside of the city walls, with the gates wide open. King Aelius saw his chance to take back his city and ordered his men to charge. The Northumbrians ran out of the forest and slaughtered the Vikings in the field before marching through the gates into the city of York. Little did King Aelius know at the time that this was a trap. As the great number of Northumbrian soldiers funneled into the city gates, they found the narrow streets hard to form up. It quickly became apparent that this was a trap, as every Viking soldier inside was armed and ready to fight. The narrow streets made it impossible for the English army to form into position, and the berserker Vikings hacked and slashed their way through the streets, 
cutting every Northumbrian to pieces and capturing their king alive. It is said in the sagas that Ivor the Boneless dragged King Ailey out of the city walls and stripped his clothes off him. There he performed the cruelest punishment in Viking records, the spread eagle. He cut through the king's back, stretching his skin out on both sides, using his sharp blade. Ivor cut through the meat and bones until the lungs were exposed. He then pulled each lung out and rested it over the king's shoulders, giving the impression that the king had wings. The Vikings had their vengeance for the death of their father Ragnar Lothbrok. This is the part of the sagas that cannot be attested to in real life, but we know for sure that King Aelia died while trying to recapture York from the Vikings. The people of Northumbria couldn't fight against the great heathen army, so they gathered all the money they could and paid the Vikings to leave them alone. Ivar accepted this money and installed a puppet king of Northumbria before heading south into Mercia. In 867, the Vikings captured the Mercian town of Nottingham, the same one from all the Robin Hood stories. Here they held out for a year, and although the Anglo-Saxon armies tried to team up and take back the city, they ultimately failed. So they did what they thought best, and gathered up as much gold as they could and paid the Vikings to leave Mercia. This seemed like a great deal to the Vikings, and they took all their gold and went back to York. In 869, the Vikings took their armies south to East Anglia, where they had a previous deal with King Edmund. They thought they could rekindle that deal and get more supplies from the king before continuing their campaign against the Saxons. Only this time the Vikings were met by King Edmund and his army. The Christian king was not going to make any more deals with pagan warlords. Unfortunately for him, the battle-hardened Vikings were stronger and more numerous. It didn't take long for the Angles to fall to the Vikings, and now they had a royal prisoner, King Edmund. Ivar the Boneless was the most ruthless of all the Vikings. He was known for torturing Christians before executing them. And his most famous killing of all was that of King Edmund of East Anglia. He is said to have taunted the Christian king and then tied him to a tree outside of his court. While cursing the Christian's God name, he told the king to pray and ask for him to perform a miracle that would save his life. Ivar the Boneless then fired arrow after arrow, laughing and asking why his god wasn't saving him. The king died on that tree with a dozen arrows piercing his body. After the sacking of East Anglia and burning of all their records, the great heathen army made its way to Wessex, and here they laid waste to the Wessex countryside and fought battle after battle against the Wessex King Alfred, and after realizing there was no defeat in the Vikings, he decided to gather as much gold and wealth as he could find and paid the Vikings to leave. The Vikings accepted the offer, retreated to London, where they waited out the winter, 
And for the next several years, the Viking army roamed the countryside, pillaging the small settlements of Britain. In 874, the entire kingdom of Mercia was annexed by the Vikings. By this time, the cohesion of the Vikings was falling apart, and the army split up into two distinct camps. Halfdan Ragnarsson took his men and marched them north, conquering more land from Northumbria and Scotland. The rest of the army was led by a Viking warlord named Guthrum, and they headed south, where they camped in the city of Cambridge for the winter. In 875 CE, Guthrum marched into Wessex and tried his luck at conquering the last Saxon kingdom. After many years of battle, the Vikings were finally able to lay siege to the capital and kill most of the men in the Wessex stronghold. Fortunately for their king, Alfred was able to escape to the swamps with a small detachment where he waited out the attacks. Three years later, in 878, Alfred had gathered enough men and marched out to face the great heathen army in the famous Battle of Eddington, and the English came out victorious against the Vikings. The army was captured, and so was their leader Guthrum. Part of the agreement was the Vikings would leave Wessex forever, but also Guthrum was to be baptized before he left. By the end of the war, the Vikings broke up into smaller parties and scattered all across northern and eastern England, while the kingdom of Wessex remained strong and united in the south. And so the great leader of the heathen army was baptized as a Christian, and when he died, he went to heaven, where he spent eternity with all the men he murdered. Ivor and his brother Abba sailed to Dublin, where he set up a small kingdom to seize Celtic men from inland and drag them to the boats and chains, where they piled them into boats and sold them to the Arabs. The Irish slave trade was very lucrative for Ivor, and he ended up invading the Scottish mainland, where modern-day Glasgow is today. There he killed another king and laid waste to the settlers of the region. History records his name as Imar, but scholars attribute Imar in Scotland to be the same man as Ivar in England. He was the most feared and gruesome leader of the Vikings. Meanwhile, a powerful new Viking warlord was making his mark in West Francia. He was known as Rollo the Walker, for he was too big to ride a horse and was forced to walk everywhere he went. He wasn't a fat man. He was a well-built killing machine, taller and broader than every man. There is a good chance that he was part of the great heathen army and returned to West Francia when the army dissolved, taking with him a large contingent of warriors. Rollo captured a city on the Seine River and used it as his base of operations, and from there he planned the biggest siege of all time. He was going to do what Ragnar Lothbrok failed to do 40 years earlier. He was going to capture the city of Paris. In 885, Rollo and his army sailed up the Seine River with over 10,000 
thousand heavily armed berserker Vikings. This battle was to determine the very outcome of the history of France, as the army was determined to deal a crippling blow to the beating heart of the Carolingian Empire. Ships loaded with men stormed the walls of Paris, and they brought with them huge ladders that were raised to the top of the castle walls. These ladders were rushed by Vikings, who climbed to the top, while arrows pelted down on them from the guards above. Thousands of Vikings died, but they never stopped charging. And even though the French were safe behind their walls, it was only a matter of time before the heathens climbed over or starved them out. Now there was no waiting this one out. King Charles was in trouble. To make matters much, much worse for him, he was in the middle of a civil war. His province of Burgundy was uprising, and now there were thousands of Vikings trying to lay waste to his capital city. So Charles did what every other king did in this situation. He offered them tons of money to leave Paris alone, continue upriver to the province of Burgundy, and lay siege to his enemies. The Count of the Palace was disgusted by King Charles' actions and vowed to get revenge. Rollo was just like any other Viking of his age and accepted the offer. He took the gold and silver and sailed upriver with his men to the province of Burgundy where he massacred the population. This worked out for King Charles on two fronts. First, the barbarians were no longer at his gate. And second, the uprising in his kingdom was quashed. Sure, he had to make a deal with the devil that saw thousands of Christians slaughtered by pagans. But for Charles, this was a win-win situation. Unfortunately for him, his victory was short-lived. Odo, the Count of Paris, overthrew him and took the throne for himself, creating a new dynasty in the empire. Rollo continued his campaign of Viking in the west, laying waste to every settlement he could get his hands on. His small band of brothers quickly grew into a large army, and then into a small kingdom of berserker warriors. In 911 CE, Rollo and his men were quickly defeated at the city of Chartres. But it wasn't a total defeat. Frankie had changed over the years. Odo the usurper had died, and the great-grandson of Charlemagne was now in charge of West Francia. His name was Charles. Charles the Simple. Normally the king would pay a large sum of money to the Vikings and tell them to beat it. But after 70 years of paying these barbarians off, the treasury was empty. And he looked at Rollo as an opportunity. Rollo had a strong army and was a fierce warrior himself. So Charles the Simple made a deal with Rollo, a deal that would have repercussions for the rest of the world. Charles offered Rollo, a man now in his 50s, a plot of land at the mouth of the Seine River and made him duke. In exchange, Rollo was to pledge his allegiance to the royal crown of Francia and protect the realm from other invaders. This agreement made Rollo a little king himself and granted him power over a huge plot of land. 
Many of Charles the Simple's contemporaries mocked him for making such a deal. But in reality, this decision ended the Viking Age for West Francia a lot faster than the rest of Europe. The land given to Rollo was called Normandy and is meant Land of the Northmen. As part of the agreement, Rollo and every one of his men were to be baptized in the Roman Catholic faith and rule as a Christian. It might seem like King Charles the Simple was giving up a great plot of land in his empire, but to be honest, he had lost control over it long before his reign started. This transformed the Vikings into aristocratic lords of Europe, who were powerful warriors that defended the northern Frankish borders. These Vikings gave up their pagan roots from Scandinavia and became some of the most powerful Frenchmen in medieval history. Within a single generation, all of the Normans were Christian, and within two generations, all of them were speaking French. It wasn't long after they adopted all of the French military customs. By forming large cavalry units and dressing in chainmail and plated armor. Even though these men spoke French and dressed like the French, deep down inside they were the bloodthirsty berserker warriors from their Viking origins. Well, that's it for today. Join us next time on the history of modern Greece. Stay safe and stay awesome. <laughs>